Welcome everyone, it's great to have you with us on what is hopefully a glorious sunny day uh, for you wherever you are. Certainly here in, in Harpenden it's it's pretty pretty fantastic so uh, yeah I'm glad you've made the time, made the effort to come and be with us and, and join with us so uh, thank you for that. Hope you've got your lunch ready and your drinks ready for a really good thorough uh, good conversation we're going to be having with uh, David. So with no with further ado, um, firstly, David, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So I'm just going to give a little bit of a plotted history just so everyone kind of gets some context about you and the organisation you lead. And then we're going to get into some really um, good questions. And just for everyone listening, we're going to be covering topics um, from leadership, culture, engagement, racism in the workplace. Kind of want to look at everything really and have a really good, honest conversation about some of the big topics um, that we're facing as, as corporate businesses. So um, Waits Group, I think, was established in 1897 uh, and uh, employs almost 4,000 people. That's right. The, the founder was uh, Edward Waits. Wikipedia is honestly it's just brilliant. Um, but, but you're now on your fourth generation uh, of the family members. Is that correct? Yeah, we are. And the fifth, the first of the fifth generation to join began on our graduate and trainee program in uh, in January, working on one of our sites in London. So yeah, it's continuing. Fantastic. So we'll definitely talk a little bit about, you know, being a family owned uh, business, but you're privately owned construction, residential and property services business in the UK. Uh, a little bit about uh, you. So you became CEO in 2018, I think it was. That's right. Uh, previously CFO at Crossrail and Langerock. Uh, not CFO of Langerock, I was the divisional FT there. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. And you'd also worked at Accenture and Arthur Anderson. Yeah, yes, indeed. Not, not my fault. Yeah, I was going to say, not there at that, that wrong time. No. <laughs> and before that, you did Modern History from Oxford, I think, was, was um, where you got your degree from. So fantastic. Yeah. Well, look, sorry, I was going to say, David, thank you so much for your time. I, we totally get, and everyone uh, uh, listening will understand, you know, CEOs are pretty, pretty busy people. And uh, so to, for you to give up an hour for us to um, have this honest conversation is really, really appreciated. And, and even more importantly, um, knowing you a little bit as I do, um, I know it'll be a really honest conversation uh, where we can look at some, you know, these big topics and really get into how do you as a CEO um, face and lean into some of the, the, the big sort of headwinds that we're facing and some of the, the big topics that are being talked about not just in companies, but actually um, across the UK and in fact, the, the world. So uh, I guess I, why I want to start is probably around leadership. And by the way, everyone listening, please do, uh, as, as Lucy said, drop in your comments and, and, and questions. I will try and get to them uh, as much as I, I can. As I said, we'll be covering some really good topics, including we'll be asking David, what's his favourite leadership book? What's the movie that he's enjoyed the most? And what's his favourite food? But we'll get to that a little bit later. So let's start at the beginning. So I think you and I actually met in 2019, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and like most senior leaders uh, I, I've met and have the privilege of working with, you know, you, you had um, ambitious uh, kind of goal and vision of what you wanted to do um, with the, the organisation. You definitely had a plan, which you called your guiding framework, was, was the language you brought to that, which really focused on behaviours, goals, uh, and really defining your purpose uh, very clearly, I think you, um, it's inspiring better ways of creating the places, communities and businesses of tomorrow. Which I have to say, right. it isn't bad for a CEO to get it that pithy. I mean, honestly, the amount of work I've had to do, and they're like, you know, they're trying to get some pithy purpose and it's like, 
14 lines. You're like, no one's going to remember that. Actually, that one, I, I give you credit. It's pretty, pretty good. I had a lot of help. Yeah. They... <laughs> um, and obviously, you talk about being progressive, sustainable and trusted. But I guess where I want to start and, and really kind of get into the, the, the meat of the, the conversation is, um, that was when we met, it was pre-COVID, right? And I guess what I'd love to know is, I don't want to particularly go over everything that happened during COVID um, because, you know, we've done a lot of those and um, you know, I know you've talked a lot about that, but what I would like to know is how did COVID, uh, COVID impact you as a leader and um, kind of ha- what, did, what did it mean for how you saw leadership, if that makes sense, kind of going through COVID? What's it done for you as a leader personally and what's it made you think about leadership in the future? Okay. Well, I, I think fundamentally nothing changed about the the core of how you should lead people. I think being thoughtful about how you care for and develop the careers and the lives of the people that you work with and help them thrive, being clear about the purpose of what people are doing and the future they're working towards, um, I guess encouraging them and supporting them so that they believe that more is possible and explaining to them what's in it for them. Uh, I think there's other uh, other things like being fair about how you recognize performance, how you manage performance and the opportunities that you give people. So you set mm. clear goals and clear parameters for how you want to work. Mm. Um, and then I think listening hard to what your team is, is telling you and trying to be kind or at least yourself when you're having to do the harder stuff. Mm. Now, I think what did change um, uh, during the pandemic was that the context we were operating in made it harder to do some of those uh, those basic things. I think uh, being remote, as many of us were for a while, made it harder to acknowledge and respect and respond to the different ways in which people were experiencing what was going on in the world and in this country. We had in our business a really significant division between those people who were still going out to our sites, to our contracts, into people's homes to maintain them on the, we look after about half a million social homes around the country, going into people's homes to make repairs when the residents themselves were naturally um, very stressed and our people were going into that sort of environment. So though we had a lot of people who were out there every day doing the work to keep the economy going and uh, to keep our business going and other people having to do the work that they do and make their contribution in isolation at home, supposedly in a safe environment. But for many of our younger people, they were, you know, sat on sofas in shared flats um, trying to do their jobs. And that was very stressful in its own way. But there were very different experiences um, for people. And people were dealing with real fear and with loss and with constant change that was happening very, very quickly and was difficult for people to to respond to. Also, I think complicating that environment, we did have some very difficult decisions to make. We uh, we furloughed almost 1,400 colleagues at uh, at peak and uh, and we made almost 300 of our colleagues redundant fairly early on in the crisis. And those things are very difficult decisions. They weigh on your conscious as a leader and actually as a, the people around me, the whole leadership team in terms of, are you doing that in a way that is fair? Are you explaining the purpose of those changes to people? Um, are you avoiding the survivor's guilt and the, the things that people will need to process? And it really tested our commitment to the goals and the behaviors that you described that set out in our guiding framework. Could we hold on to what mattered to us? Could we maintain contact with our future and our uh, our intentions for the business whilst going through this very difficult um, this difficult moment? 
I felt very strongly, and I think the people immediately around me felt very strongly that people wanted to be led. And there was a real sense that people wanted to believe that they were being led well. And that was part of the approach that people needed to support their own psychological mm -hmm. comfort and safety in that moment. And that obviously brings a, mm -hmm. a, a responsibility with it. And, um, and I think uh, in terms of what my, my response to that was just you talking about you know, showing my workings, explaining mm -hmm. why we were taking the steps to shut offices, yeah. keep sites open and trusting people with that information. Yeah. And the idea of trust was particularly important with our sites and our contracts because um, shortly after the national lockdown was announced, we paused everything for 48 hours mm. and we shut everything, all of our sites and wow. those contracts where we could. And we said to the local teams, look, we're going to leave this in your hands. If you believe, because the government's asking us to keep going, yeah. if you believe you can do that safely, um, then we will support you in doing that. But if you believe you can't, then we'll support you in that too. And every single site team came back and said that they wanted to keep going and adopted new ways of working so that they were safe on site. So that was trust repaid. And that, that idea of trust being repaid throughout the crisis, I think was an important part of, of what got us through. Yeah. Um, just just listening to you, David, it's interesting because, and I hope everyone else listening kind of picks up the multitude of decisions you were being asked to make as, as, as the senior leader, because rightly, we spend a lot of time focused on employees. And, you know, that's one of my big sort of focuses, is, you know, um, how are we engaging the employee? How are we helping them thrive? Um, and and we, we've listened really carefully to employees through this. But um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes the leadership perspective gets missed because understandably everyone's focused on, you know, the vast majority of people and how they're feeling and what they're going through and what they're thinking. But I know when we, when we met up just after, I was like, how are you doing? Because often leaders don't get asked that and there's nothing better for any of those listening, just occasionally saying to your senior leaders, how are you getting on? I mean, you know, genuinely as a person, not even as a leader, where, where are you at? Uh, yes. How are you getting through? And um, sorry, you're going to say. Well, I, I think that, you know, my, my wife's a hospital doctor, mm. and so she was kind of uh, exposed to the virus very early, got it, was pretty unwell as as lockdown hit, and so you've got, and I had two teenage sons, one of whose GCSEs were being messed around, algorithms and cancelled, and um, yeah. uh, so there were other things, you know, and, and, and yet I do recognise that I was relative to most people in a very, you know, in a very positive position with, you know, the... Uh, safe home to um live in and work from and yeah. enough to eat and drink and all of that so uh but, but yeah there are pressures on everyone i think across an organization at times like that yeah well the, the difference is uh, i totally hear that and you're right that um you know uh, ours and many other people probably even listening on this weren't at danger necessarily of of going under or any of those kind of things through through the pandemic um but actually your if you like your mental well-being and your emotional state as we talk about it, impulse um, matters quite a lot because you're making decisions from that and you know we've all watched Boris and we watched Nicola and other senior leaders and, and truthfully we've kind of cared about their emotional states go I hope they're okay because they're making really flipping huge decisions that affect our lives yeah. and, and you know you want to to know that they're in, in a good place but just want to go back over a couple of things there because for everyone listening it's a really powerful moments you say about for you leadership is about caring for people and developing them and uh, you know um I don't think senior leaders say that enough. And, and, then, and then those who do say it enough, it's about how do you show it? How do you actually 
um, tangibly um, yeah, show people that that's what you're doing. Because often it's a bit like um, I was just at the chemist before this and I was listening to the two chemists having a really honest debate about Boris, actually, at um, his speech at the climate change. And they were saying, wasn't it embarrassing? Wasn't it awful? He was making jokes. I, I didn't actually hear it, but they were but they were really like, and, you know, and all these politicians, they're all out for themselves. They're all in it for themselves. Uh, it can be sometimes like employees when they talk about senior leaders. I know because I've sat in lots of listening sessions. They go, oh, those leaders, it's all about them and what they want and, you know, all the rest. But um, for, 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 so for them to hear actually a leader articulate, you know, what I want to bring to the organization is for leaders to care, to help develop people, to help them thrive, to help them. Um, and I, you used a really interesting line. You said, to, to show them that more is possible. I'd love you just to lean into that a little bit and tell me a bit about, because that's an interesting aspect of leadership, that um, it's to help people see that more is possible. So just tell us what you mean by that. Okay, so I think there's um, two comments I'd make on that. The first, I mean, all of this stuff comes from what influences you and develops you. And I had the very great fortune of being taught by some um, brilliant people in my secondary school in High Wycombe. And, um, uh, one of the people who taught me through my sixth form, he he kind of, you know, if something was worth doing, it was worth doing as well as you possibly could. And he pushed me and the, um, my friends around me to, you know, to produce our best work. And it left me with this belief that you can always change anything. You can make it different and better and that it is worth the effort. And in, in my life and work and uh, the people who work with me, actually, when you do push harder, you can achieve some incredible things and one of the uh, one of the things you have to be careful about that is you can't always be running in sixth gear you do need you know there, there have to be peaks and troughs to the rhythm of your work but if you focus on the stuff that's important and give it your very very best shot then I I that's been worthwhile um, for me and the bit about showing people all the way through the organization that development and people's development people's um, the purpose that people have in their work and, and how they do their work matters. It goes back again to people I worked for at the beginning of my career. People, I, I worked for a woman called Julia Smith and I was at Arthur Anderson, who's just a superb uh, tax, uh, tax specialist. And, um, uh, but she would take the time with junior people like me, you know, four or five years behind her, I obviously didn't know which way was up because I'd done a history degree and had no idea how accountancy works, but she would take the time to show me um, you know, how this should be done and why that mattered to our customers and why that mattered to HMRC and, and why it was worth the effort. And her taking that time to show up and spend time, be present, it gives a, you know, it, it, it makes the effort that you're asking people to give more meaningful and and I, I learned lots you know both from a technical and behavioral point of view from being around someone like her or I, I worked for a guy called Julian Scan at um at Accenture and again he would take uh, take time to explain why he was why he was adopting an approach and to explain the things that he thought about before asking us to adopt a particular course of action and that giving time to people was so significant to me in my development. Um, I think that that's a really important part of how leaders um, show that they are interested in and care about the people yeah. around them. Yeah. And, and, and so David, like that, that to me is so interesting. And you know, I, I talk about, you know, time that leaders give is like a superpower. It like, it makes them just this awesome superhero. It shouldn't, but it does because so few people, so few leaders do it. And often when we're, we're running coaching sessions, 
with lots of senior leaders, we'll be talking about, you know, all the things about leading everything you just said. And I'll go, but what's the one thing that's going to stop you? Uh, and, you know, invariably someone within seconds goes, time. It's always time. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's the most precious commodity uh, yeah. that people have uh, predominantly. But um, how do we take what is so obvious and just what you described, like how much it helped you in your career and how much it's helped others that you, I'm sure you, you've done it to, how do you in your organization, and for everyone listening, they'll probably be thinking, yeah, I'd love to say to my leaders, take more time on employee engagement, take more time to listen to your employees, take more time to actually um, care and understand where your people are at. And, and by the way, one of the biggest issues coming through COVID was this issue of um, managers giving their people time to actually have the conversations, not just to check in, because a lot of that was happening. How are you doing the work? What's going on if they were working from home? But um, making time for them just to talk, to support them in their role. So how do you await uh, uh, to do that with your leaders? How, how do you, because you know your leaders will come to you and say, David, far too busy. <laughs> I, I, I think um, it, it was one of the pleasures of, because um, yeah, the, the, what's happened over the last 18 months has had some positive effects as well. And one of the pleasures was seeing the way in which, you know, teams within teams would get together and, and twice a week have a virtual coffee morning to stay in touch. Um, and that people would take would care enough and take the time to do those things and to spend an hour and a half or do a, do a pub quiz virtually with their teams in, in the afternoon. And those forms of connection actually did, people were then relaxed and they did share the things that were really on their minds and the things that they were struggling with. And there were some more formal things as well, because whilst COVID's obviously been a, a real focal point for a lot of what people have done over the last 18 months, there have been other changes as well. We have obviously left the European Union and we're seeing some of the impacts of that um, at the moment. The climate crisis has come into much tighter focus, but particularly I think the social crisis that followed um, George Floyd's murder uh, last, last year, that led to us putting in place quite a lot of listening groups to understand what colleagues were going through. And I mean, some of those were, were frankly upsetting to hear what people were dealing with at that moment and what they dealt with in their lives. Mm. And uh, it's changed some of how we, you know, some of what we spend time talking about, what we measure, what, how we're going to pay people will be altered mm. as a result of what we've learned through those sort of listening groups. And as I said, they were pretty upsetting. You hear when people are revealing and the courage of people to reveal some very difficult stuff about their experiences in life. Mm. Um, actually, it, 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 the, the time that you spend listening is hugely valuable, not only to the people that you listen to, but mostly for you in learning um, a little more about the world you're operating in. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Listen, and we're going we're gonna to come on to um, uh, uh, George Floyd and his murder and, and the impact that has had and is still having and the uh, what that means for things like uh, racism diversity inclusion in the workplace we're going to come on to that in a few minutes but just before we we do um two, two final quick questions around leadership again i think probably everyone listening will go um what you've described is the dream of what they would love their leaders to be like in terms of you know caring for listening um empowering people um helping people to thrive what do you do when leaders aren't and haven't been for some time acting like that? Yeah. Um, how do you kind of handle that? You know, because again, there's a lot, lot of uh, HR uh, and employee engagement specialists on 
I'm sure they'd love to know, like, what do we do when we've seen some poor behaviors in leaders and we, we want to influence the CEO to say, come on, you know, this is having an impact. What do we do? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think being fair and clear are the uh, remedies there. We've we've um, in looking at some of our data about the structure of our workforce, how people progress through the organization. Um, I think we've, we we are we've recognized that there are some areas where we need to do better. And the messages that I've shared with my leadership team are super clear that this is part of your job. It is, it represents an unacceptable form of success to simply deliver your numbers um, in, in weights now. And, um, and we need to change. And for the organization to change, leaders must change. And we've been clear with people that if, if the leaders we have don't change, we'll have to change the leaders. Now we have to give those people, the ideal is we don't have to change anyone and that we can support people to make the changes that they need to make to go through the processes of self-reflection, self-examination, to educate themselves on some of the issues that we um, need to spend much more time on in, in leading our business. Um, but you know, we've been talking about some of this now for a year or two, and we want to accelerate progress. And that is the job of the people mm. leading the organisation. And that, fed, you know, that, that kind of clarity about what it what is required of leaders in our organisation. How are we going to measure that so that we are fair in how we evaluate people's performance? And then, what are the, the minimum? standards of behavior that we're going to tolerate you are as good as the worst bit of behavior that you accept aren't you as an organization and i think we've recently been giving some crystal clear guidance to our people about um uh some of the behavioral changes that we want to see and we're supporting people in making those changes we have an iLead program that we've put in place to help um uh, people understand the impact of their language their behavior the tone of voice um really understand what microaggressions mean to people in our organization and the, the bits of the community that we we um we touch in our work um and and so in terms of when um What's my objective there is to be clear what's required to support people to get there, to be clear if there's a problem, and then ultimately to make sure that the problem is fixed one way or another really quickly. So I've got to ask then, what's the time? What's the time scale you'd give? So from someone being identified as not performing in leadership, I love what you said, by the way, if leaders don't change, we'll have to change the leaders. So I'm intrigued because, uh, you know, um, as a CEO, how long would you give it to go it's been identified. There's been some remedy. We've really tried to support them. We've offered coaching. We've yeah. you know, given regular feedback. At what point do you go? Honestly, I've, I've got to call it. I think we. I think because the things that we're focusing on ha have been in place now for a couple of years. Um, I think, and and we are now rolling out quite clear measurement around how people are working to improve the diversity of their teams, yeah. uh, the difference that they're making to the um amount of carbon or waste that our operations generate when we get to kind of the end of this year we'll have a pretty clear view of how people have performed now where people aren't making a difference i think you go through the normal thing you go through of a performance improvement plan you give people an appropriate amount of time three to six months depending on the severity of the failure and the extent of the change that's required you give them the support and then you call it at the end of that period um, I've never been a fan of those things rolling forward constantly. I think, um, particularly for people who are at the level where they work directly with me, you know, yeah. we need to get this done. 
Yeah, no, it's really, really helpful to hear. And, I, and I'm, I pushed you a little bit there, David, because um, having worked across lots of organisations, the number one thing that um, in the vernacular pisses people off is when they um, see leaders behaving one way, which is against what the culture is being and it not being dealt with. No, no yeah. one actually calling out saying, hey, enough, that needs to be uh, changed or removed. Well, we've, yeah, we've already had a couple of mm. gift, very gifted leaders leave the business because mm. the alignment wasn't there. Mm. Yeah. yeah no no thank you for that and you, you've had someone come in and say great response it has to start with the ceo setting uh, the tone which i would agree with so thank you to anonymous uh, for, for for that um so let's let's move on and as we said uh, for everyone listening we're going to be covering the climate crisis and looking at what david and, and weights are doing there we're going to be looking at some of the very ambitious targets you've set around that we're going to be looking at engagement and the retention issues that uh, a lot of businesses are, are facing right now but before we do i want to come on to a very big topic uh, that we described around uh, diversity and inclusion and David you've, you've actually set some really ambitious targets and uh, you know cred credit to you uh, for doing that and you've basically said that you want to better reflect society and you've given yourself to 2025 to go look let's really move the dial significantly by 2025 so next four yeah. years and um, you've actually sort of uh, put these out sort of so uh, non-white employees from 12 and a half percent to 20 percent uh, on gender, uh, it's currently 20% of employees, you want to see that move to 40% female. Uh, LGBTQ is 2%, you want to move that to 5%. I think disability was 1% and you want to move that to 3%. So they're, they're, they're pretty am ambitious targets, knowing uh, the world of work and, and um, kind of where you're starting from. And um, before we go into to, to weights itself, um, you talked, you touched on George Floyd's murder, and I know you and I had some very open conversations um, about this. And I guess I want to start as as you look back on your life. Um, do you see that white privilege has helped? Has helped you? Would you I accept think, that? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of different types of privilege that I've benefited from. It's not only being white. I think actually, uh, you know, being a man has been um, hugely beneficial and. Um, Actually, over the last probably two years, I've changed the uh, the stories that I tell myself about my own life, and um, and I think until a couple of years ago, probably the central narrative was that I'd faced all these obstacles and difficulties, and I'd worked very hard and overcome them, and wasn't that cool. Um, and uh, and actually, uh, with closer reflection, it turns out that. None of those obstacles were determinative in how my life has panned out. And in fact, the things that have been determinative are that, you know, I grew up in a nice part of the country, got to go to a really nice secondary school that got me to a good university with the help of a mum who was a teacher. Mm. Um, uh, that got me into a good first job. And from there, as I became more senior, every room that I walked into contained a greater and greater proportion of people who looked exactly like me. So I was completely relaxed, able to perform at my best and be completely comfortable straight away. And that went also for the people who tended to interview me, mm. all of the uh, roles that I've had in the later part of my career. Mm. Um, and actually, when you compare that to um, some of the way my uh, my sister had been treated through the school system, through the university system in work. Mm. You know, I, I had huge advantages uh, relative to Steph, and she did better than me at every single level of academic um, achievement. But uh, uh, you know, on the day that she went into the 
uh, office of the partner she worked for in a major law firm and said, I'm, back, I'm going to be having my first child. The response she received was, that's a shame we thought you might make partner. And uh, that sort of thing has never happened to me. Um, and, uh, and that has been really helpful to me in, in securing the jobs I've, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to do and in uh, creating an environment where I felt able to perform straight away in the roles I was given. Um, so I think it is, there's white privilege, there's male privilege, um, there is the privilege of being the middle class son of a teacher and um, I, I've benefited from an enormous amount of those things. Now what's happened in telling myself the, the story of how lucky I am is that I feel lighter and happier, the sense of struggle has gone and being replaced by something much more um, contented and optimistic and it has also I guess inspired in me a real determination to send down that ladder for more people because yeah. it's not fair and it doesn't yeah, we've got some big problems to take on as a species and if we consistently get the answers to the, the problems that we're facing from just part of the population the answers won't be as good you know and um, so it's important um, it's, it's important that quite quickly the whole is you know, it's not only construction it's not only weights mm -hmm. that needs to change uh, the way the world is wired up uh, does need to change pretty quickly yeah. David, thank you for that total honesty and, and quite high vulnerability there. I re really appreciate that. I, I would love more CEOs to talk like that and to, number one, accept there is uh, such a thing as white privilege, because unfortunately that still is um, being debated. Um, I'm not sure the government are really helping particularly uh, on, on that, rather than just acccepting it. And as you say, change your own narrative, change your story, which is very powerful. You said, you know, that I've changed the stories I've told myself about my life, and it's actually made me uh, more contented. So you know, huge, huge credit to you for that. I just want to read, because I, I think it's really um, powerful. Rene, Rene uh, Edo-Lodge um, just put it this. When I talk about white privilege, I don't mean that white people have it easy, that they've never struggled or that they never lived in poverty. But white privilege is the fact that if you're white, your race will almost certainly positively impact your life's trajectory in some way, and you probably won't even notice it. And I think you pretty much sum that up extremely well so um th thank you for that and, and the reason i'm raising it as well for everyone listening is um i think part of uh what i've taken on as part of my job is to keep bringing these uh, um, really important topics up in organizations to go it hasn't gone away it hasn't been fixed and if we don't keep talking about it and as you then said doing something about it which I, again i loved your second line which was we need to send down the ladder for more people to climb because if anyone's listened to me over the last year you'll know that I'm a real believer in it's not a zero sum game. This is not some win, some lose. This is everybody can win. Yeah. But it means the winners need to help others uh, yeah. win, you know. So, sorry, you can say. We have a thing in our, you know, our workforce is, uh, is very, you know, the majority, we're majority men. Our leadership is majority white, middle aged men. Mm. Uh, but one of the great things about the construction industry is we have people who are managing directors of 300 million pound turnover businesses who began their lives as apprentice plumbers or as a, apprentice electricians or as brickies. And that kind of social mobility is fantastic. And one of the things that I think we need to overcome is um, the sense that the people who have benefited from that kind of social mobility who are white um, feel threatened by our push to become 
uh, more diverse. But in fact, we, we want that kind of social mobility to continue. We, the simple point is we want that mobility to be available and those opportunities mm -hmm. to be available to everyone, regardless of their of any aspect of how they would define themselves. Mm -hmm. so you, by the way, it's blowing up now on the Q&A in the chat. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear. So, uh, in a good way. <laughs> everyone's coming in and um, a lot of, lot of positive messages about appreciate the candour, seeming to care. I think Rachel, hey Rachel, good to see you, said a really important point. Employees are savvy. If it's all taught, they'll know. Um, and, and knowing you, David, I know you'll take that as a compliment, not as a criticism. It's like, yeah, great, bring it on. Um, mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it, 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 you know, as you say, leaders can sometimes say the performative right thing but they're not transforming the 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 organization so um and um jody's just saying here i think recent research showed that some field do feel threatened by dni uh which which is um a really interesting point and then uh, metro has said do you think that the rhetoric currently or actually lack of honest debate is creating further division which is great because the question i was going to ask you is um uh having how how are you bringing white middle-class middle-aged men with you because they are still in as you said majority positions and there's a challenge there around they can be blockers if they don't come on the journey of exploring you know privilege and race and and kind of being willing to have this honest conversation so how, how do you bring them with you um i think the, the first thing is you have to accept that it won't happen overnight you you, know, you asked questions about time we have been talking about this now for a couple of years so we are in the mm. this is you know this is go time is yeah. is yeah. where we are as an organization but i think it has been appropriate particularly with everything that's been going on in the world to allow you know, to, to accept that change does take time and that this isn't a this isn't a this is about people taking time to reflect on themselves their lives the lives of their families um and the people that they know less well and 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 that stuff is is very difficult. Now I, I'm, I guess uh, uh, there is a natural impatience uh, that I have around. Well, look, I've I've done some of this thinking. I've shared some of the thinking and the reading and the listening and stuff that I've done. And um, and I, I really do need you to come with me on this because this matters to our business. It matters to me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but also, I think just being really clear that you know our target is to have forty percent of our of our organisation be female, not fifty percent. Actually, fifty percent of the people in the world who could make the best contribution to our business are women. So we've got men who are in a significant majority now, yeah. helping us work towards a target that would still see them be a majority in twenty twenty five. And over time, obviously, we have to move to a place where our targets get tougher and we we really reflect um the, the communities we work in but uh, uh, um we, we've provided a lot of tools and training for people we've we've um uh, created opportunities for them to listen to colleagues and to experts um and we've encouraged them to read around the subject and we've been really clear mm. about what the targets are and what needs to change well, I'm glad you brought up targets because you're getting lots of questions about targets. Uh, so pe people are saying, we love that you've set them, love the, the, the level of ambition, but um, how do you ensure they're realistic and achievable? So do you think by 2025, you can move the dial as much as you have? And just, just secondly, have you tied them to leadership re remuneration stroke bonuses? Uh, the, um, 
I'll deal with the second one first. We are doing that from next year. So okay. uh, it, our old remuneration scheme did not, our new scheme will. Um, uh, so yes, including the way, I mean, it, and that starts with me, um, you know, that process of including those things begins with me saying to my Remco chair, yeah. you, you know, the organization should care about that. So I, this, I care about it. I want to be remunerated against my, uh, according to my success in achieving this change. Right. The, tar the targets are ambitious, but they are doable. And we've, we've made some really positive changes. Our, our trainee, our graduate and trainee intake last year was 50-50 for the first time ever, male, female. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we weren't quite at the level of um, ethnic diversity that we wanted in that, but that was a start. Mm -hmm. Now, if we if we then if we add if we if we get closer to our other targets in our subsequent intakes, then that is um, uh, that will also help. We're changing the way we recruit. We piloted um, uh, quite a while ago now in our construction business. You know, uh, anonymized CVs and some of those things I know have been in place in other organizations for a long time but we were introducing them into our organization and and we're going through much um, more open recruitment processes than we've done before it takes time back to the precious commodity of time it does take managers and leaders more time to recruit in a better way but um, getting the best people into your businesses you know if that isn't the job of leaders and managers I don't know uh, I, I don't know uh, what is um, uh, and, and yeah I think then making sure that we retain these great people when we bring them in we've 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 recently appointed a um, a brand and attraction manager to help us look in different talent, talent pools for the people we bring in, not through the usual construction yeah. Yeah. Um, agencies. But the fundamental behavior we need to change is how we plan the development of our workforce. So mm -hmm. for our operations directors, our local MDs to look ahead and say, well, I think I'm gonna have three projects um, starting up over the next nine months in this part of the world. And therefore I know I'm going to need three project managers. I'm gonna kick off the recruitment now. One or two of these people may not come from the sector and may be delivering big system implementations for IBM or Accenture or you know, same skills or lead, leading projects, but maybe from a different context. And that over time would make our organization better. That doesn't work if you wait till you've won the job and then you need a project manager to start yeah. on site on, on Monday when what our industry has tended to do is then reach for someone who ran a job a bit like that for you five years ago who will be exactly what you would expect that person to be yeah yeah fantastic and listening to you it's really interesting because i think there is something about um and then hear me right everyone listening um it's the boring dull processes and systems yeah that, that need to be changed and as dynamic and you've been you know fantastically dynamic today david in what you said i like the fact you're then rolling up your sleeves and going and now i've got to go sit with remco and honestly i've, I've done some work with remcos and it's the most depressing <laughs> You know, spreadsheets and numbers and if that and this and that does you know it's not my bag but but it's the detail that go actually unless we change that i can have all the great rhetoric yeah. uh, it, it requires the process and systems change so so again great to hear that that's, that's it requires data because yeah. there's no point in you know the, the legislation and the regulations require us to report on things like our gender pay gap but they require it once a year at a group level and that isn't the way that you make change because people aren't attached to those 
targets, they're not attached to that data, they don't feel they can affect it, they don't feel they're going to be held to account for it. Mm. Whereas if you publish data on a project at a project level, if you publish that data on a regional level by business unit level, then the people who are leading the way those businesses operate are tied to their data in terms of improving what the mix is. And that's, yeah, we, we, that is really hard work and that is underway as well. Yeah, brilliant. So we've got about 15 minutes left. Those who come regularly to uh, an Impulse webinar will know we like to finish just before the hour so we can give you time to go to the toilet or go and get another drink ready for your next webinar or whatever it might uh, be doing. And in that time, we're going to be covering now, I'm going to be moving uh, on a little bit to look at um, uh, the business and actually some of the big targets around the climate crisis that we're facing. As we know, construction industry is, 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 has been one of the biggest uh, negatives on 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 that side. We want to see how do we turn it into a positive. We're also going to talk about engagement, and then we're going to get your favorite leadership book, your favorite music, and your favorite movie. I think we we said so. Um, and just just sorry, just last one. We did have um, Jody ask, uh, and I might need a little bit more from you, Jody, just on what you mean. But she said, "Are you doing anything to ensure that gender balance target is intersectional with with ethnicity, disability?" Yeah. sexual orientation so That's yes we are, yeah. Yeah. we are we are measuring uh we are measuring those things and and actually it's when you measure those things and you look at the number of um of of black women that we have in leadership it's it it, it actually that really brings to life the scale of the challenge and the scale of the opportunity to make our business better um uh that we have ahead of us so yes we are doing that yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks, Jody. Um, so let's just move on. In 2020, before COVID struck, you set some ambitious goals for Wakes to eliminate, and, and it's not really clear here, to eliminate waste and carbon from your operations by 2025. Yeah. And I just want to put this in context because I had a look. The government set the target for 2050, uh, I believe. Balfour yeah. Beatty sets their target. Uh, sorry, Kia has said they're going to do it by 2045. Balfour Beatty has said by 2040. And Morgan Sindel has said, uh, and Wilmot Dixon, and Murphy, and Bam have said by 2030. So you are really setting a marker down in, in the Yeah, I, it, it, the, um, how people define their targets is really important in this. So yeah. what we have committed to is that our scope one and scope two uh, waste and carbon will be at zero and that we will be net nature positive in our work by 2025. The targets that you're referring to for those other people are uh, other, other organizations. They are further out, but that's because they include scope three, which then gets you to be you know, looking at um, uh, into your supply chain and looking at how um, carbon and waste move there. So um, it is about how we operate our business. We chose to limit it to scope one and two and to the things that we directly control so that we could make progress earlier and that that would build a momentum in our organization because the, the reason those targets are, I mean, why people are picking 2045 for UK businesses is that you can't work in Scotland unless your target is 2045 for the public right. sector. Um, mm -hmm. So people are picking 2045 are going as late as they can yeah. because that will require um, a different kind of partnership with the people who own the buildings that we maintain or who bring forward the schemes that we, they, they trust us to build for them. And, um, the, the wider change that the built environment needs to make is so material to um, uh, to the way we as a species get through this. Um, uh, and it is really encouraging that we're starting to see the really um, forward thinking organizations like the Crown Estate, like British Land, like Land Securities, 
are now really taking accountability for the long-term performance mm. of the assets that they own. And they are starting to become interested in designing structures that can be dismantled in kind of urban mining of the buildings that are there so that we get out the materials and the products that can be reused. They're looking more at refurbishment than creating um, new buildings. And that's good for us because that's one of the areas where we're particularly good. Um, but there is a change now that is is altering the nature of the requirements from our customers and the partnership that we um, uh, we will uh, uh, we will hopefully have with them. And we've started up, we, we set up last year a uh, weights integrated construction services. It's all the bits of delivery that we do directly from um, RSCS, very complex uh, mechanical and electrical installations. So we're building a big 250 million pound battery plant for Nissan up in the northeast that uses a lot of SESS technology and our um, and our and our building expertise. It's the dry lining services, SES, um, and our offsite manufacturing um, uh, facility. We've got a factory in Coventry that can make bathroom pods and um, uh, uh, and uh, service cupboards and a lot of the electrical and mechanical installations that go into big buildings. I think having a centre of excellence there that gets rid of the waste that you typically see on sites is so important to us and to our mm. customers in the future. But I think it's really, I think it's a really exciting thing. You end up focusing on the quality of the design. If you focus on the quality of the design, the buildings will be nicer for people to use, whether they're working in them or playing in them, and you know, um, living in them. It, 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 I, I think there's some really exciting times ahead for the built environment. So. Um, and so just last question on, on this, it's an ambitious target, are you, COVID probably didn't help? Um, no, so and that's down to some very little deep things like in our, in our um, cafeteria, in our head office in, in Leatherhead, we've, we've continued to wrap things and food in plastic to have people feel comfortable eating it rather than having it out on the counter. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, we've got, we've got rid of that sort of plastic where everyone had a mug and you know we, we were we had no disposable cutlery and we we've done all of that stuff and we had to take a step back and reset to have people feel comfortable working and we have we have lost a little time but that just uh that just means we've got to run a little bit faster now so. fantastic good david just with with now about uh, less than 10 minutes left i want to look at engagement and obviously really thrilled that um weights partners with impulse uh, and our approach and I guess straight off the bat um, uh, um, I wanted to understand why is focusing on how people feel important to you because uh, uh, everyone listening that's kind of one of our USPs we do all the other questions that everyone would ask around engagement but we also focus on actually asking the question how do you feel about working away so people put actual emotions yes in there. so so for you as CEO what is that important why why what's what's it matter well I think I think Fundamentally, it's about the performance of the business and about us as a, an organisation displaying to people that we mean what we say when we say we're going to care about them. And that's yeah, one of the three behaviours that we said actually is to care for people and for their performance. Um, so unless you really understand um, uh, what people are feeling, you can't possibly get the best out of them. You can't properly engage them. You can't even really empower them in a way that makes sense to them, because I think um, People are, are guided by what they think, but the thing that really guides them is probably what they what they feel. The stuff is like this. I said earlier, the stories you tell yourself are more important than some of the thing you would some of the stuff you would normally uh, uh, articulate, and it affects how they how they perform. It affects how they show up for the people around them. It affects the atmosphere 
um, in the teams that you're trying to get to collaborate, to work together, to do the best job um, that they can. And I think I, you know, people, particularly in a male-dominated environment, are pretty good at telling you um, what they think, but they are much less accustomed to, much less skilled at, and, and much less regularly tell you, uh, tell you what they're feeling. And if you can get them to start sharing how they feel, I think that binds those people to you and to the organization in, in a different and, and much more powerful way. And I think it's, um, uh, you said some, one of the first times I met you, you said, well, these, you know, it, it's a risky thing the way your survey works because, you know, people put in their information, they can see the scores arriving um, as soon as they press go on, on their submission. And so the first time you do that as a leader, you're thinking, you know, please don't be too bad. Um, and and uh, luckily it hasn't been so far. Um, but that, that step is important. And you encouraged me that it was worthwhile by saying, well, your people are feeling those things, whether you know about it or not. And you can either know about it and be able to respond or they can bottle it up and you'll feel the consequences in a way that's unmanaged and that you're not mm -hmm. in control of. And I think that that, is, that, that, has, um, that has played out for us in terms of mm -hmm. understanding, particularly during the very difficult moments last year, it was so encouraging that people gave the feedback they gave on how the organization was treating them despite some of the very, very difficult things that we had to do. So, um, yeah, I think that's, it's, it's about performance and honoring our commitment to care for the people, yeah. really care for the people who work for us. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you won't mind me sharing with everyone listening that um, on your February 2021 uh, survey, you're actually in the middle of one right now, so we can't quite give the results. Um, and you do do it much more regularly than than you previously did, which is great. You're listening more more regularly. But in the February 2021, your po positive emotions um, that people chose was 72%, which is plus four on the impulse average across the whole platform and all the, all the employees. Uh, but what was interesting was committed was 56% of employees had chosen the positive emotion of, of committed, which is 13 percentage points higher than for the impulse average so there was really something about um, i was looking at some of the comments earlier about people saying you know this kind of leadership um it, when felt and experienced can have a positive you know reinforces a retention it reinforces wanting to be part of this kind of organization and there's no doubt we've seen that in your results with you know being 13 percent uh, point uh, percentage points higher when it comes to the the emotion of committed what I will say, because I'm being very kind to you, is one thing there's still to work on in, in weights is, but and to be fair, it's, it's kind of an industry-wide, is well-being, which is yep. still a little bit of a, a, an issue because uh, that is lower down than the, yep. than the uh, impulse average. And I think still working out, and, and we're seeing this across the construction sector where we were, I think, the six or seven of the largest construction firms, you know, well-being is still um, the sort of number one issue. And I think the last 18 months have been very, very difficult from that perspective. We've seen... Yeah, I've seen a lot of my colleagues um, in leadership positions work harder than they should and feel more stressed than they should. And it's affected it's affected their well-being very significantly in a, for a couple of uh, for a couple of them. And that is, um, you know, that's problematic. And we've got to change how we operate so that that stress is is shared and dissipated and managed in a much more productive way. Yeah, it's really interesting to say that. Something that's been emerging in, in some of my conversations, and I'll be sharing a bit more with you when we meet in a couple of weeks, um, is around almost acknowledging to the organisation, and, and this can be a bit dangerous, but um, the analogy I'm using is like war. It's like the war's over. You can stand down and use that, that language. And it's a bit 
I totally accept it's a bit male and, and, and not necessarily the perfect example, but it's that sense of when you've been at a hundred percent and you've given everything and the adrenaline's at its end and, you know, all the things coursing through you, you know, all the chemicals, it's like you actually go, okay, it's stopped or the fire is, has been put out. It's still smoldering. We're still a bit worried, but what's your thoughts on that? Well, we've, we've, we're encouraging everyone, and, and it was the theme of the leadership conference last week, it will be the theme of our roadshow on the 22nd of October, but this idea of a personal reset, and mm, it is the, the focal point of what we do has been the pandemic, that focal point now needs to shift to be the goals that we set a couple of years ago that we need to, um, uh, that we need to now really accelerate our progress towards. But to do that, you can't just go from running at 100 miles an hour to then just, we've got to have this moment of reset. And if you think of what a reset does to a computer, it you turn it off, the components cool down. If you reset properly, you know, all of the viruses or malware that's found its way into your programs, um, can, you, get, you get rid of that. You can then install the applications, you can install the data and the files that you need to perform. And when you turn the machine back on, everything runs a lot more efficiently and smoothly. And we're asking people to take time to reflect, to process a bit of what has gone on to, you know, talk to, uh, talk to their colleagues, talk to their families about how they feel, and then kind of recommit so that we really begin 2022 feeling that we are, uh, you know, we are, we are back on it. Our goals are back on. The world will never be quite the same again after COVID. There are some big yeah. negatives, but there are some yeah. big positives too. Yeah. So reset is our, um, our the, the, the language that we're using internally to describe exactly what you're saying. How do you how do you take the moment? How do you process? Yeah, and what, what I really like in that is the permission given, the permission granted. You know, please reset, please talk yeah. about it, please work out, as you say, what you need to just let go of and, and come down from. Look, with two minutes left, thank you everyone for saying it's been a really high retention all the way through. As uh, Lucy said up front, we had over 200 people um, join up. Um, we always get asked to send out the video, which we'll be doing, don't worry, uh, with some links as well um, to some of the targets the weights have set. Uh, bit as a fact finder, so you can know I've not just made it up, but really quickly with just a, a couple of minutes, I'd love to know what's your favorite leadership book, David? Oh, I love everything that uh, Matthew Syed writes. So uh, I think Rebel Idea is the idea that you make much better decisions if you have cognitive diversity in your teams and, uh, and in your approach to problem solving and his black box thinking book, book before that that compared kind of the airline industry and how it had learned from its accidents and how the medical profession in which my wife works does not. Um, and she found that very interesting as well. And there was a book from my, you mentioned I studied history at university. I, I was taught by a guy called Alistair Parker towards the end of his career for a couple of terms. And he published a book on Chamberlain and appeasement and just the human thing of, it was based on all the cabinet minutes from 1935 to 39. And, and that you had this group of human beings trying to, deal with this really unusual threat and how how they how they um, how they moved and thought as individuals and as a group through that that's an interesting example in how leadership sometimes is very complex fantastic I'm just going to finish because I think uh, Amna Khan forgive me if I've said said your name I do apologize has said you know I joined this call with fairly low expectations David I plan to have this running. In the <laughs> Does she know me? <laughs> I, know I haven't done a single email since you started speaking. As your commitment to leading people in an authentic and honest way, where you have an actual plan for diversity inclusion, is really refreshing. Great to see the link of metrics to remuneration as as well. And, and someone else has put thanks for your openness and honesty. So, David, from me, I just want to say uh, uh, a huge thank you. 
really, really appreciate the time you've given today. And um, yeah, I particularly appreciate the honesty and, and openness in, in all the things we've spoken about. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me.